0: Uh, hi, okay. today I'm speaking with Mike Bird, who's a journalist writing about finance and economics. He will shortly start at, at The Economist, writing about Asia finance and business news. He, he previously worked at the Wall Street Journal covering Asian financial markets. Uh, nice to have you here, Mike.
1: Thanks very much for having me.
0: You, how did you get into journalism? What attracted you to the field?
1: Um, I I got into journalism pretty much by accident to be honest, Um, I know a lot of people set out uh, really wanting to, Um, I started by uh, when I was at university I I studied history and and politics and I I wrote a few pieces for sort of university paper for uh, blogs online but never really gave it much serious thought Um, That was around the time of the global financial crisis, Um, just as I was starting university, very interesting time for for macro immediately afterwards. I became much more interested in it um, and tweeted about it a lot. I had a DM uh, from a guy called Julian Harris, um, really nice guy who is at the time, the night editor at uh, City AM, which is a British financial free sheet, um, sort of tabloid style. And he got in touch and said, would I be interested in uh, applying for a job as the economics reporter at City AM? Um, And I told him, yeah, sure. Um, And I went and I interviewed and everything went well. And yeah, um, I took the job and honestly, it's very, very engaging and I've never really looked back. I think um, I enjoy the fact that it's something new not just every day but you know constantly rolling over um there's always something interesting going on and also it's a sort of very privileged position in getting to speak to some of the world's most sort of influential and powerful and interesting people um from that position uh yeah it's it's very difficult to imagine doing anything else to be honest
0: okay uh what's one thing everybody else gets wrong about journalism and journalists
1: Ooh, I would say one of the things that people get wrong about journalism now um, is you hear a lot of people talking about journalism being about clicks, um, which I think may have been the case for some publications in the region of about seven years ago and has been the case less and less since then, not just at the sort of major subscriber publications, but almost everywhere. And I think. One thing that people get wrong because of that is they think that journalists chase readers through sensationalism, where actually journalism's bigger flaw is chasing other journalists. Um, A lot of the uh, really high profile publications and uh, high profile journalists fall into the trap of writing for their colleagues and writing for their competitors other newspapers And they actually completely forget about the audience. And it's almost the opposite of click chasing in that they don't care where the the traffic comes from. Um, And also media um, business models have just transitioned away from traffic as a a major feed of um, revenue. You know, you get a lot of, online advertising revenue relative to print revenue but for most media organizations your money will either come now through subscriptions um you know almost everywhere has a paywall now there's very very few publications that are really free to open um pretty much every media organization on the planet has opened up and events arm. um they'll try and make money in almost any other way other than clicks um so a good example is where i worked before the wall street journal a business decider um which i say we're, would would probably have classed in you know 2014 13 as the sort of pure click driven model that's what it looked like and you look at it now and it's got a paywall and it does special um, special content for additional subscribers. If you want to get more content about FinTech, for example, you'll pay extra and you'll get the newsletters and things like that. It's a completely different model. And I think the way that people talk about journalism hasn't really developed beyond the the where it was, you know, seven or eight years ago.
0: Are you skeptical of the Substack boom? Should more j- journalists start off as independent writers on Substack?
1: That's an interesting question. Um, Uh, And I think it's something journalists should definitely consider. Um, I'm not sceptical of it as such. Uh, I do think it's not something that all journalists can do for obvious reasons. It skews towards well-known journalists with an existing audience. Um, I think, for example, that if you're a journalist just starting out, I don't know how you would make that work for you. Um, I do think it tells you something very interesting about the way that the media packages things into publications in terms of what's interesting and what's not interesting. Um, If you go to a newspaper, you'll often hear journalists griping about the rumors about how much the sort of superstar reporters or the superstar columnists get paid, you know, that they're, you know, they get so much attention and money. And the reality is they're probably not being paid as much as they would be if they were out on their own doing a substack type model. Um, There's then questions of how long can you do it for? Um, what audience are you really catering to? Um, yeah, I, I think it's fascinating. I think the journalists that go out and do it have a lot more um, courage than I do. Um, and what I will be interested in is what happens when journalists, as is inevitable, it won't say that the subject model's failing or anything, to say that some of these journalists will do it for a couple of years and then decide that they preferred the being part of a publication folded back in, whether that's for job security reasons or reasons of being around your colleagues or or just not liking running what is essentially a business as well as writing at the same time, Um, they may fold back in. And I think what would be interesting is to see how well they fold back in, especially the people who are less columnists and more reporters. Um, if they're accepted sort of with open arms back into the media industry, the mainstream media industry, and are able to take sort of senior staff jobs at major publications, then I think you might see this trickle on for a long time. You might see journalists every now and again, just hop out, you know, say you've done 10 years at the Washington Post or the New York Times, you might jump out and say, Hey, I'm going to try and do Substack for a while. You'll do that for maybe five years. Maybe it suits your working life. And then you'll jump back in. Um, It'd be interesting. I I don't think it can possibly be a model for the whole of the media. Um, But I think it's a really useful thing to see what some journalists write when they're really writing out on their own, Um, when they're no longer under the pressure of um, the audience, their publication or their editors or anything like that. Um, Yeah, I think it's a valuable contribution. I'm not a skeptic. I'd say I'm relatively pro Substack.
0: Mm -hmm. that's pretty good to hear given i write one but um, good (laughs) but you've been reporting in hong kong for some time now what's the most interesting interesting thing you've learned reporting on asian finance and business
1: oh most interesting thing i think the the thing that becomes obvious as soon as you start writing about Asian finance and business is that there's no such thing as Asian finance and business. Um, It is uh, something in a lot of people's job titles. It's something in a lot of, you know, newspaper verticals. It does not exist as a, as a unit. Um, The, you know, Mongolian bond market has nothing to do with the Chinese property market, which has nothing to do with Japanese regional banks, which has nothing to do with, you know, Indonesian, uh, mobile payments, like these things are the places, obviously everyone knows it's, it's massive, but I think the, the level of interconnection is sometimes exaggerated. Um, so when I, I previously worked in London and when you cover European finance, European finance really is a thing. Um, you know, the, the bond markets move with each other, the banks work largely across borders. Um, you know, that's, that's a real, you're talking about something that, that where the constituent parts work together in a way that it makes sense to talk about it as one thing in Asia. Yeah. The thing that you realize is there are often very few commonalities between places. You spend a lot of time looking for trends that run between them. So for example, you know, you you might talk about high levels of household saving in the richer parts of East Asia is something that, that runs through. Um, But a lot of it is very, idiosyncratic and unique and it's very difficult to talk about it as as one unit and i think also that means that when you're writing about it you can't expect an audience to come to you on the basis of being interested in asian finance you know there'll be someone who's interested in parts of it no one says to themselves gets up in the morning and says i wonder what is happening in asian finance um, they have their own specific areas that they're interested in um, finding a way to to wrap those sort of disparate threads together in a uh, cohesive way is uh, it's difficult. It's difficult, but it's it's the sort of main part of the job, I would say.
0: Mm-hmm. You thought a few months ago, a few months ago, but how the Hong Kong's government ex- excessive re- reliance on land leasing is, is causing high prices. Could you explain to us how that how that works and and how it ends up hurting uh, Hong Kong citizens?
1: Totally. So this is a, a big sort of obsession and preoccupation of mine about land markets in general, but Hong Kong is probably the prime example of uh, how places go wrong when it comes to land. so Hong Kong's always been a, a low tax place. Um, the economic model is established on the idea of uh, very low taxation. Essentially, when it was a British colony, um, the, the the mother country, the UK, wouldn't pay for anything. Um, any money that had to be raised would be raised in Hong Kong. Um, having a high-tax society was, was never uh, particularly plausible at the time, and what the Hong Kong government began doing, and this is decades and decades ago again under the British administration, was um, leasing land uh leasing long-term land ownership or land use rights um to private owners um realize you could raise an enormous amount of money this way um especially as hong kong became richer it's a fairly land constrained place um the areas that you can actually build on once you cut out a large part of the the northern part of the territory and the new territories has sort of indigenous land rights attached to it Um, So you're really talking about Kowloon and the non-mountainous parts of uh, Hong Kong Island. Um, So you're really talking about a fairly small amount of space and land prices were pretty high and the government realized it could make a considerable amount of money doing this. Um, And honestly, on the face of it, I can understand why that seemed like a sensible strategy at the time. Um, It means you can keep income and corporate and sales tax rates low or at zero um, and keep going. The problem that it generates is that it creates sort of perverse incentives for the government in terms of uh, land prices, um, which is that as far as the government's concerned, uh, higher land prices are good. um, And fairly wealthy, prominent developers are good because it means there's always going to be wealthy buyers competing for the land rights. It's um, good news for the government because again, you don't need to raise any other sorts of taxes. You can see, start to see now where this gets into bad news for everyone else um, in that it means house prices are very high. Um, it means rents are very high. Um, and I think in the long term, this is one of the the real preoccupations of mine. It is one of the reasons why Hong Kong is so obviously not very innovative relative to the more innovative parts of Asia. Why there are no major Hong Kong tech startups, despite the fact that that is exactly where you would expect. If you'd taken someone back 30 or 40 well, forty years, say 40 years, to the, the early 1980s and asked them, where do you think there might be major innovative startups uh, coming from in Asia in the next 40 years? I think Hong Kong would have been very high up the list. Um, And it requires an explanation as to why that hasn't happened. And I think that when land prices and rents and house prices are all very high, it discourages innovation and entrepreneurial activity and encourages sort of conservatism in terms of saving habits, in terms of going for, you know, say you've got an interesting business idea, but you've also got a, a decent job lined up as an accountant you go for the one as the accountant because you have to save for 15 years to afford a uh, one bedroom flat in kwantong And there is, you know, a lot of risk involved to the other side of things. Um, so I think it saps away at productivity. Um, I also think that the way Hong Kong's land market is set up has informed in a very negative way. Um, how China's land market is set up. So it's, it's sort of a big problem on a much larger scale over the border. Um, and I think people don't always realize the fact that, you know, the Chinese government borrowed huge amounts of uh, their land policy directly from Hong Kong.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, around 10 years ago, Jim Chanos and other China perma bears were saying that the, the Chinese property boom was, was going to bust and China's debt was going to catch up with it. But although growth has slowed down, which you, would, which you would expect with higher levels of GDP. There hasn't been a massive property bust in China. Why? What, what was the reason behind that?
1: Well, I think the thing that people like uh, Jim Shanos and, and Kyle Bass, who, who made that bet, um, the thing that they, they get wrong is that China's financial system, while economically huge reforms since the late 1970s obviously it's a, it's a market-based system for for many you know goods um despite the fact that there's a there's still a big uh, soe sector you know it's a capitalist country in a number of different ways in terms of finance it's it's really still not a, a capitalist country in a meaningful way you know if you were again transported from 40 years ago and you had worked at bank of china 40 years ago you'd still recognize large portions of it um so credit in china is distributed on uh, political grounds and for political reasons um and i think that while i understand you look at the chinese housing and debt dynamics and say it's all going to crash it's all you know it has to end someday ultimately the government as long as it doesn't want that to happen it doesn't have to happen right um, I, I, I think that's what's happened effectively. You look at something like 2015-16, uh, the, the last period of real severe stress, I would say, before. Now I, I see some signs of significant stress in the housing market. Um, the, the government just, just flushed it through effectively. Um, you know, They made mortgage lending much easier. They cut interest rates. Um, they allowed a huge volume of credit. In terms of like doubling the flows going into China real estate, a huge amount of credit to go into it. And frankly, as long as the government controls that, which I think it largely does through the capital controls, you know, um, is able to continue doing that if it really wants to. Then I think it's very difficult to see how the market collapses as such. Um, It may well be that at some point the government decides this has all gone too far maybe they let some large developers go to the wall, maybe they let some regional banks go to the wall, Um, maybe they try to insert some sort of market discipline into the system. But they really are at risk in doing that in terms of 80% of of Chinese household wealth is contained in the housing market. That's probably an underestimate given that the the financial products that they hold their wealth in are also tied to the the housing market. Um, So The risk is that people see the one asset that they've purchased, the asset that if you speak to any Chinese people, the thing they will tell you about the housing market is that they know that prices can't go down. They know that it's all effectively government guaranteed. They believe those investments are safe. The idea of prices dropping um, would be... Socially difficult. Let's put it that way. Um, you know, you see small-scale protests when, say, a developer uh, doesn't build houses on time, when a developer cuts prices, and someone's already paid the higher price. You see these small-scale protests. They they have the potential at large scale to be, you know, very damaging and worrying. Um, so the question is for me then, so then what, you know, if the bubble can't burst, does this mean they've, they've, they found the trick, they've, they've cracked it. And, you know, the Western countries that have been letting markets drop for, for decades, they've been making the wrong decision. Um, and the answer is no, I would say that you see it feed through in exactly the way that you've seen it feed through in Hong Kong, which is risk-taking behavior, entrepreneurial behavior drops off. Um, productivity in China. I think there's already a visible effect on productivity in China from the very, very high household debt and household debt repayment levels. Um, you know, there, there's enormous household debt. It really is difficult to quantify it as comparable to anywhere else. Um, you are talking about multiples of disposable income that are basically unseen anywhere. You're talking about third tier cities where a price to income ratio is sort of higher than San Francisco, or higher than London, um, uh, sometimes considerably. So um, where none of these properties are rented. So there's no stream of income for the investors. It's really all speculative activity on the basis that the prices continue to go up. And the normal behavior of a Chinese household is to save and save and save. And when you've saved enough money, you put down a deposit on a new house. Um, Whether that's your first house, your second house, your third house, given that you're not renting it, often the second and third houses stay empty, uh, which is the cause of the very, very high vacancy rates in China. Um, I would say that it's impossible to have that sort of system for this amount of time and not see the consequences of it feed through somewhere. Um, I understand why 10 years ago people thought that would be a market crash. I think it probably won't be. Um, But the, the, the effects will be seen down the line.
0: Uh, one contrast to this is Tokyo, where for the last 15-20 years, real estate prices haven't changed that much. A lot of people put this to Tokyo's zoning policies, uh, and but even then, uh, we see that uh, Japanese equity markets are somewhat different from what you might see in in China in, in in China or or even the United States with a large proportion of zombie companies do you uh, what's your take on the japanese real estate situation
1: I've never been quite a hundred percent sure how much uh, to put down to each side of things. I think that Japanese zoning and building policy is great for what it's worth. Um, n- not just in terms of the, you know, you look at it from a a, a real estate economic side, um, but you know, it's, it's a beautiful place as well. You know, that just in terms of the urbanism of it, um, you know, the, the, the regular rebuilding, the, the the light zoning constraints allow for these sort of beautiful streets um, it's almost entirely carless. It's a lovely place beyond just the, um, the, the, the real estate economic side of it, but I'm never a hundred percent sure. So net additions to the Japanese housing stock have been pretty high for the last sort of 30 years or so. Um, now the problem I have with that as a cause for what's good about the Japanese housing market is that a lot of that was true during the Japanese land bubble in the 1980s as well the problem during the land bubble wasn't that they weren't building enough houses. And I think it's, we have to admit that there would never, there was no amount of houses that they could have built in the 1980s that would have gotten rid of the the land bubble that would have made prices flat. So the difficulty I have with this is the other thing that's been going on in Japan, along with large net additional building rates is pretty flat, real and nominal incomes for a very long time. Um, so you had, a move to lower interest rates much earlier on. So you haven't seen the interest rate declines that you've seen in Europe and the U S you've had lower interest rates for longer. You've had flat nominal income growth for longer. Those two together suggest to me that while Japanese housing prices staying flat is still impressive, they still would have risen considerably less than those in the U S and Europe, even without the sort of good building policy. Now, that doesn't mean the building policy is not good you should still build like that if you look at things like the average size of uh, a japanese home um i believe it's now larger than the average size the new builds of english homes right which shows you how much sort of progress there's been in terms of that certainly when i was growing up the stereotype always was these tiny little japanese homes um certainly not true anymore um yeah i think it's a it's a very interesting question and as i said at the beginning what well, i've never been able to really tease apart exactly is how much is down to interest rates and slow nominal income growth and how much is down to the building. My suspicion is that if Japan had had higher interest rates to start with and say, it's 2000, it'd gone in where the Bank of Japan's base rate was, was 6%, say in 2000, and it'd gone down to where it is now effectively flat, slightly negative, And you'd see nominal income growth in Japan and you'd seen the net additional building house prices would have gone up quite a lot, all the same. Um, difficult to put exact numbers on it, so it's very imprecise. Um, I, as I say, I don't think that's a reason not to praise Japan's uh, building, house-building policies, which I think are excellent, and I think a lot of countries could learn a lot from.
0: In New Zealand, uh, the Reserve Bank is now in charge of, of uh, keeping housing prices stable. Do you think this is good for more good and more developed countries sh- should do this?
1: Um, I I think it's terrible. I think it's awful. Um, I think that the it's a it's a very very popular confusion, and I understand why people get confused by this. But I'm saddened that it's managed to get into the sort of policy making toolkit of a major central bank because it worries me that other places will will pick it up um it's a confusion between inflation in goods prices and asset prices um, again i understand why people do this it, particularly in housing this is such a difficult split to get people to understand which is that when we talk about housing we're almost always talking about all of these things bundled together so we're talking about the cost of house prices right which is the cost of the asset and housing services which is the rent or or the owner imputed rent or whatever you want to call it Um, you're talking about all that bundled together. So when I say housing is so expensive, usually I'll mean both of those things. The prices, if I would like to own a home are expensive, the rents are expensive. You know, it's very difficult to tease that apart in the minds of the average person. So if I say to someone, oh, actually house prices going up, that doesn't count as inflation. It really doesn't count. Um, You know, I can understand why that sounds to a lot of people, like a distinction that doesn't matter. You know, to them, They want to buy a house. Houses are becoming more unaffordable to purchase for them. Therefore, that's inflation. House prices are going up. It's a bad thing. Um, the difference between housing prices going up and housing services costs going up is obviously that when my rent goes up, I do not get an asset at the end of it. I have nothing. I'm not sat on anything that I own. That money is gone. I've spent it, right? It's the same with food price inflation or anything, right? Which is why central banks monitor and worry about those things and don't or haven't historically worried so much about house prices. Um, because, you know, it's the sort of inflation that adds to net wealth, which is an unusual sort of thing to lean against, it will be an unusual thing to complain about. Um, so I don't think that central banks should be doing it. Now, that doesn't mean that high house prices aren't a problem. Obviously, high, high house prices, I think, are often a really big problem. And um, I think that the better way to deal with it is, as we discussed in the previous question, you talk about Tokyo and and Japan in general, build more. Also recognize that this is a distributional issue, that some people really like it when house prices go up and some people really hate it when house prices go up. And that's because there's a sort of typically in this case, it's an intergenerational inequality issue there. Um, Monetary policy is a very poor tool to tackle that with. I really think that with monetary policy, you should be sticking to the most simple things, which really not even inflation, but nominal GDP growth or or nominal income growth, or you want to make an average wage target or anything like that. Stick to your metric, right? And, And just do that. When you're asking central bankers to fix distributional issues of inequality or issues that should have been solved 30 years ago by having a better planning and development policy, you're asking essentially for them to... You're essentially asking for recessions. That is, to my mind, the only way meaningfully that a central bank with its interest rate policy can affect housing housing prices. You can cause there to be a recession by hiking interest rates for sure. That won't be good for house prices guaranteed. But I don't think it's a good thing to target at all. Um, I, yeah, I'm, I'm really not a fan of that. Now, some central banks have been given macro tools to deal with house prices around, say, the distribution of credit. Um, around uh, loan to income ratios, uh, that's all fine. That's, that's absolutely fine. Um, but frankly, that's not really central banking in a meaningful way. Um, those could be given to a, a finance ministry, a fiscal authority, it could be given to a separate government department. When I say that central banks shouldn't uh, really be preoccupied with house prices, I'm really talking about, as far as interest rates are concerned, I do not want the central bankers looking at house prices at <laughs> all. Um, I really, really do not want them leaning against the housing market. Um, and actually, the, to, to speak to the original example of this, that I think is not a well enough understood part of central banking history. Is this is exactly what the Bank of Japan did in 1989 90. Land prices were explicitly recorded as they were too high, they were rising too fast, and the Bank of Japan said it would hike interest rates until they started coming down. And boy, did they start coming down. They came down really fast and they brought down equities and they, you know, brought Japan into this 30-year period of relative stagnation. Um, That's the ultimate example of a central bank taking house prices seriously, and it's one of the most, to my mind, disastrous economic decisions anyone's ever made. uh, yeah. So no, I do not think that central banks in general <laughs> should be uh, okay. should be looking too much at house prices.
0: You're the only person I've heard who gets so excited about this. I'm so happy to find you because even I found it mildly <laughs> annoying <laughs> <laughs> when I
1: the news. But yes, as I uh, yeah, I just I I get it. I get it. I do understand why why people feel this way and why um, to to an ordinary person. Um, You know, because when you talk to an ordinary, you know, a normal person who perhaps doesn't work in finance, um, when they think about buying a house, they're they're, they're thinking of, they think of it as a cost to live in it, not as an asset, right? Um, You know, they think about, they think they're wasting money on rent, and it will be better to own it. And yeah, I I, I get it. I do understand. But I think it's a shame that the politicians in New Zealand have allowed this to go on for so long. Um, Essentially, they will have had people explain this to them, and they've gone for it anyway. Um, yeah, I think that's a shame. And I feel a little bit sorry for the uh, RBNZ in uh, in having to engage with them.
0: <laughs> Speaking of New Zealand, uh, New Zealand and Australia have done extremely well with COVID-19, but not so good with vaccinations. This has this been true for every single country, which is, it seems as if your success of suppressing COVID-19 is inversely re- related to your success of uh, vaccinating your population. It's probably not true for Singapore and these days China, but why do you think that has happened?
1: Um. The, yeah, no it does it does very much seem that way that especially among developed countries if you were going to pick out two that have been slapped really hard by COVID-19 and had gotten the policies wildly wrong of large developed countries. So I'm I'm not including Israel here, but you'd probably pick the UK and the US, right? Um, You know, they did extremely poorly in the early days, a lot of absolutely dreadful policy errors, um, huge waves. Um, They made policy errors actually again and again during the pandemic, but managed to get the vaccine development right, get a lot of vaccines to the population very early. Um, Australia and New Zealand are the exact opposite side of that. I think that partly it is just when it seems like things are going well, you they didn't consider it to be as pressing as the, the UK and US did. Some of it is as simple as that. You know, are you going to rush to order and develop and, and sort out your vaccines when you really think that you've sorted it already? Probably not. Um, so part of it is just prioritization. I think part of it is that Most people don't like going to the doctor or taking any sort of uh, medical uh, anything if they can avoid it. But in the UK, certainly, which is the one I can best speak to, there's two things. You really didn't want to get COVID. And that was really a very high possibility. If you don't get vaccinated, you are probably going to catch it at some point, realistically. Um, And vaccination was the key to unlock the door of getting your normal life back. Whereas, frankly, for a lot of people in Australia, the chances of you catching or dying of COVID right now are incredibly low, ludicrously small. Um, there is almost no chance of that happening to you. Um, so if you are even slightly vaccine hesitant, slightly worried about the side effects, anything like that, why bother? Right. Um, and also, if you're not a, a big traveler and you live in Australia or New Zealand, then you already have your normal life back your normal life never went away. Um, this is a, a big thing in Hong Kong as well. It's very difficult to convince a lot of people to get vaccinated when they frankly were not planning on leaving Hong Kong and their lives simply haven't changed an enormous amount during the pandemic. Um, I do think, as you mentioned, that Singapore is really the the best example of a country that managed to, uh, or looks like it's managing to straddle both sides of this as well as possible. Um, so Singapore will doubtless unlock slightly later than, than the US and the UK but not enormously later. Um, It will do it steadily without a big exit wave like the one the UK is seeing at the moment. Um, It managed to get the access to the vaccines relatively early, um, but it also kept COVID out last year. Um, I think that you're going to end up with more places, sadly. um, And I hope I'm wrong about this, but Hong Kong has had almost full vaccine access for several months now. Older groups have had access since February, take-up rates are incredibly low. Um, And I think looking at what's happening in the UK now, it's very clear that having 60-70% of your population uh, fully vaccinated um, is clearly not enough to prevent large waves of infection. so the prospect of a lot of places, in particularly in Asia-Pacific, the ones that did very well last year but aren't vaccinated as quickly now, opening anytime soon is pretty poor. There's also, I think, a sort of psychological element to it that Singapore has done quite well on, which is people need to be primed for this. I don't think the average Australian, frankly, understands that at some point, unless they decide to vaccinate infant children and managed to get vaccination rates up to very close to hundred percent of the population at some point COVID-19 will be an active disease spreading in Australia. That is if they ever want to open up, that will have to happen. I think Singapore has started to prime people for an understanding that at some point this will be, it's been described by the, the, the ministers in charge as more like flu in the we don't lock down or seal the borders to keep the flu out um the flu spreads around we vaccinate vulnerable people and we get on with our lives um but i think people need a lot of preparation for that i think new zealand and australia for example hong kong certainly these places are not they've not in any way been prepared for that reality and i think that most people still don't understand that zero covid was a good goal while you waited for the vaccines to get developed um, now that they are developed it's not uh, it's not a long-term thing you can't you can't have that as long-term thing it's simply impossible um again unless you want to stay locked off from the rest of the world forever which i don't think these places do um i hope not anyway for my sake but
0: <laughs> should more places try vaccine lotteries hong kong tried one and i and i heard you had a flat which is a little interesting given it's so expensive
1: <laughs> yeah yeah the flat uh it's worth about i think ten and a half million hong kong dollars so uh in the region of um a million pounds you know eight, uh, what would that be 1.1.3 1. 1.4 million us something like that um you know honestly anything anything that gets people to 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 take it i'm i'm perfectly happy with honestly i wouldn't mind um i'm surprised that fewer places haven't just gone for direct cash transfers to people who will take it there's a lot of discussion about sort of people making slightly spurious behavioral arguments about oh, if you pay people to take it, then they'll think there's something wrong with it and they won't take it. And I'm always a little bit skeptical of that. Sometimes incentives just work how they look like they'll work. You pay someone to do something and they'll do it. Like I I sometimes don't think it's any more complicated than that. And yeah, I'm surprised that fewer places haven't done it because frankly, the amount that you would have to pay people to get vaccinated for it to stop being worth it economically to get the prize of reopening is enormous. You know absolutely huge amounts of money you need to pay someone if you were paying someone everyone in the us for example you've already given them thousands of dollars (laughs) each um if you were to give everyone who got vaccinated a thousand dollars and said anyone else who gets vaccinated gets a thousand dollars um that would that would pay for itself overwhelmingly in preventing future outbreaks which we've seen it you know potentially economically devastating um yeah i am surprised if your places haven't done it i think that almost anywhere should try vaccine lotteries payments almost anything just just give people what they want and um and get on with it uh yeah the the hong kong one's been interesting because the government has been extremely averse to doing this itself that the lottery of the flat is organized by a developer there's a number of other incentive schemes but they're all private now the government has prodded private companies to do this but they won't do it themselves. I'm I'm a little bit torn on that because if there was one case where paying people might cause people to become more skeptical of the vaccine, I think it's probably Hong Kong, where trust in the government is incredibly low. Um, but in general, just pay people. That it would be so much better <laughs> if you just gave people money for it.
0: Speaking of giving people money, most of the developed world and parts of the de- developing have had an unprecedented fiscal uh, response, right? The U.S. has seen almost zero. In fact, nominal incomes have increased in, in, the, in the U.S. if you count personal consumption. Does this set a, set a model for the future or, or, and does it become unsustainable at some point or are the modern monetary theorists right? Can we just keep do- doing this again and again?
1: Um, I would say, uh, maybe cautious in this cause it's a hot button topic. Um, oh. <laughs> uh, but so I would say that I, I'm not an MMT guy as such. Um, but I will say that the reality of the world has lent very much in their favor for the last sort of 20 years. Right. And the, we are constantly warned about the coming moment where this becomes different and unsustainable and the potential for the bond vigilantes and all of that, but it never arrives right um, now, I would frankly, even if you're looking at this purely from a, a new Keynesian point of view, um, I would be thrilled if this became the model of how we deal with recessions and, and financial interruptions. Um, having lived through certainly all of my adult life and and frankly, um, potentially not in the UK, but globally, my my childhood as well, through a period that we can now fairly comfortably say was one of very persistent global slack where things could have run considerably hotter for considerably longer, especially for the last 15 years. Um, I think that the risk to me of going too far the other side and finding out where the limits of that are, are relatively low. I would honestly like to give the MMT guys a run at it for a bit. Um, I would love to find where that upper bound is. And say it comes there, you know, and say we find it and we say, there it is. Okay, actually, there's no more slack. This is genuinely inflationary at this point. Um, You know, there's a serious like 1970 style problem developing. The good news is, we know how to solve that, because we've already done it. Um, You know, we know that interest rate hikes are frankly more effective than interest rate cuts, you want to throw the brakes on that thing. It's not going to be difficult, you just slam the brakes on right, we'll have a Volcker moment, nobody will like it. But there's an element of I would love to get there just to to know, um, to know how much uh, lost capacity we've left on the table. Um, I suspect it's probably quite a lot. Um, uh, If the various theories of inflation, so my former colleague, John Sindrew has been, uh, he's his writing and thinking on inflation has helped me to sort of develop my own over time. Um, and, and basically I think that there's so little that we confirmably and definitely know about inflation and where it comes from and how it works that I'm very cautious about the idea of restraining economic activity on the basis of one theory of, of where it's all coming from. Um, so yeah, as I say, while I'm not a, an MMT guy as such, um, I'm increasingly happy to see them given the reins here. Um, And I think it's interesting, again, to see that the US has come out of this crisis with what seems to me to be obviously better economic policymaking once again. So there was plenty wrong with the U.S. response to the financial crisis, but it was overwhelmingly better than the British or European response to the financial crisis um, or the Japanese response to the financial crisis. Um, And again, you're coming out where you're seeing U.S. policymakers who I think to some extent, they just they just have higher expectations. They just want it more and they're not willing to put up with um, the potential for lost capacity in the in the way that certainly European policymakers seem to be um yeah I'm I'm happy with what's going on I would say that um I've been relatively happy with the the size and scope of the the uh the stimulus policies and if it gets to a point where they're too much again at least we'll know we'll learn a lot from getting to that point if we do get there Mm -hmm.
0: Uh, you mentioned an interesting thing there which is that Europe was a lot more cautious uh, after the global financial crisis, and the ECB started QE in only 2014 or fifteen, if my memory, if my memory serves right. What do you think led to that? Why did Europe grow, slow, grow so slowly? And um, America didn't do very well, but did much better than Europe did.
1: So Europe um, hit by the sort of dual crises in terms of, yeah, the financial crisis and then the eurozone debt crisis. Now, I would be one of the people who argued that the financial crisis was to a large part a, a choice. Um, there were things that you could have done in 2008-9 that that really at least resolved it much, much quicker. Um, but Let's start from the premise that the financial crisis was unavoidable. Um, As I say, I don't really believe that, but let's start from that premise. Um, The euro crisis that the eurozone was hit with in the subsequent two years was definitely not uh, unavoidable. There is no way of portraying it as unavoidable. Um, It came about because uh, the European Central Bank and the European uh, heads of government of the major countries made it very clear that they did not intend to allow European sovereign bonds to become essentially interest rate products. So they were not risk-free. This is an explicit thing that they said, um, you know, these are not risk-free instruments. And the market understandably started pricing additional risk into them. Um, And more and more risk as it became clear just how badly placed the Greek economy was, uh, the Spanish economy was, the Portuguese economy, and essentially refusing to allow uh these to be um interest rate products is is the grand floor of the eurozone and it's still not totally fixed um I would say it's not it is the ecB's fault but it's also the the fault of the entire setup um in that had the ECB wanted to say otherwise in 2010 it would have run into uh, at a time sarkozy and merkel who certainly didn't uh, agree that those should be rates products. they thought it should be risky credit products um and they, they've run into this floor over and over again and it's um it's part of being a, a sadly sort of poorly constructed monetary union I also think there's an element where you can't just blame that in that there is an element that is common to the UK, which is just a uh, it's the soft bigotry of low expectations, (laughs) which which uh, Americans for 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 all the many flaws don't have. Um, Americans have very high expectations for everything, and that includes their economy and economic growth and stuff like that. And European countries have for whatever reason, politically been capable of putting up with enormous amounts of stagnation. Um, and I think it is partly because it's badly constructed and a lot of the, the the critics of the Eurozone who would say that the problem is that the Eurozone doesn't have a, a polity, it doesn't have a, you know, the average German doesn't go to the polls thinking about, oh, I better do something that helps my poor brothers in, in Madrid really? and Athens. Um, they don't, they don't think that, and it doesn't work that way. Um, uh, so I think that partly it's, it's misconstructed. Partly there are a lot of very poor political decisions made at the time. Um, but partly it, it is just a matter of political will. Um, if you don't want it, you, you won't get it. Um, and what you've seen, especially over the last 10 years, but to some extent, uh, like going a little bit further back than that is, the share of, if you look at the average eurozone per capita GDP, it's always difficult because you you know doing it in dollars or purchasing power parity or whatever. But basically, however you do it, is is falling away from the US level. Um, it spent a very long time catching up, and then it peaked, and now it's sliding away. And if I was, that that's happening in the UK as well. And to me, I would say it's one of the most pressing political issues any country can go into. Right you were converging on the frontier, the global high standard for economic performance, and now you started sliding away, and that would be the most gripping problem to me to address. But clearly to the average person or the average politician in the Eurozone, that is not the most pressing problem. And as long as it isn't the most pressing problem, then to some extent, it's no surprise that they end up in this situation. Um, I think that most people don't know that, for one thing. They don't really understand that their parents, potentially, or, or maybe them when they were younger, They were closer to the u.s um standard of economic output or standard of living than they are now um i I don't know whether that will ever become a major political issue or whether it will become well known but uh yeah i don't think it is at the moment
0: Mm -hmm. Uh, a step away from all of this where should ambitious young people go
1: today oh wow what a question uh wow okay um So I'm going to fudge it a little bit by saying it really depends what you want to do. Um, I think that, to be honest, America is still the answer for a lot of people, I I would think. Um, I think there's still huge dynamism in the U.S. that you don't see everywhere else in the world for all the problems in the U.S. um, That's certainly the case. Um, It really does depend. I would honestly say, and, and certainly from my experience, that just don't go to one place, don't settle on on one place. Um, go to a bunch of different places. I think if I was doing something other than journalism, um, I would be fascinated to go and spend some significant time in mainland China, um, because whatever happens there on the, on the macro basis, it's it's going to be a you know huge important part of the next however long you want to put out um and i think understanding it better and knowing more about it um will never be a disadvantage for any sort of enterprising young person so i, I would quite possibly do that um in general east asia and southeast asia um i think that for europeans in particular staying in europe just just get out just it's it's uh, a. <laughs> you you've got to get out and do something else it's um while europe is great i'm a huge fan you know it's my my sort of uh ancestral home obviously it's it's not the place of greatest dynamism and i think it's it's difficult to look at it and say the next 10 or 15 years in europe will be really interesting relative to the next 10 or 15 years anywhere else i'm sure there'll be interesting things i'm really not trying to do it down but i i i wouldn't stay there personally
0: Okay, uh, you're you're a football fan. I won't offend you and call it soccer. Uh, who do you <laughs> think is going going to win the, the, the Euro Cup final?
1: It's got to be England. It's got to be England. <laughs> I feel like it's um I feel like it's destined at this point. I will say it's it's honestly that it, there's no reason it can't happen, which I think is the uh, England fans often say that it's the hope that kills you, and in this case, it is definitely <laughs> the hope that will kill us. It's it's you know going up against an an Italian team that there's nothing wrong with the Italian team, but like England can definitely beat the Italian team. (laughs) It's not like, it's not like we fluked our way through the competition that we've ended up less so than in the the world cup last time where we did end up with a slightly easier progression. Um, Yeah. I, I, you know, it's a, it's the closest we've obviously been in my lifetime. Um, And yeah, I have to say England on that basis. Um, I'm absolutely bidden to.
0: Okay, uh, that's the end of it. Thank you, Mike, so much for for being here. You've been one of my most interesting guests.
1: Great. Well, thanks very much for having me. Um, No, it's a great series. I was listening through some of it. It's, uh, It's really good.
0: Thank you.